Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the federal CIO says the TMF board isn't just for handing out money anymore. We're going in and we're speaking to the agencies, we're coaching agency teams, we're connecting teams that are doing similar work across government to make sure that we're learning together. The strategy behind the refresh at OCIO. I was able to do that after having spent some time here, seeing where we were gapped and seeing opportunities that we had to really improve our own internal operations. And time for an enterprise view of agency cyber efforts. The challenges are common across all of the organizations and we really do need to look at it that way instead of saying, oh, well, this one's great and this one's terrible because it's not true. Everybody has room to grow and room to improve. It's Monday, March 21st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Lidos. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The new budget request coming soon from the Biden administration will include funding all across the Defense Department for Joint All-Domain Command and Control. The head of JADC2 at the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl, says DevSecOps and the Mission Partner Environment are getting what he calls a, quote, disproportionate amount of attention. Sources tell FedScoop the White House budget request will come out officially next Monday. NASA will do a risk assessment of its unclassified systems to see if its insider threat program should include those systems. The assessors will include representatives of the Protective Services, the Office of the NASA Chief Information Officer, and the Office of the NASA Inspector General's Cyber Crimes Division. The agency is standing up the working group in response to a recommendation from its Inspector General's office. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. IT leaders from CISA and HHS headline the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference, May 19th. It's happening at the International Spy Museum in downtown D.C. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Postal Regulatory Commission and the Selective Service System are the two awardees in the latest round of Technology Modernization Fund money. The PRC's money will modernize a docket system that's 20 years old. The Selective Service will move one of its high-value systems to the cloud. Claire Martirana is Chief Information Officer of the United States and the Chair of the TMF Board. Claire, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. I think a lot of people were surprised that these were the two agencies and that they were it. Tell me about the selections of these and what's important about these projects to you and the board. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Francis. And um, the, the simple answer is both agencies made their case. What's impressive about their proposals was they both took an iterative approach to build and test their assumptions by launching MVPs, minimally viable products or rapid prototypes, you know, basic products that can show others within their agency what's possible. So the front end work that they did actually enabled the board to see what they were capable of, that they were capable of the success that was in their um, uh, initial project proposals and their final project proposal. Um, It also is incredibly helpful to see how they brought their leadership together. Um, So they had gone through components that are always tricky in IT, right? Change management, agile acquisition, that were really key pillars of both of those plans. What what makes for uh, a case in uh, 
TMF proposal. We've talked about it before, but I wonder what's here and what maybe wasn't in some of the others, because the last time I think you said publicly uh, a number, you had more than 100 proposals. Yeah, we've had over 130 proposals, uh, well over $2.5 billion in requests. Um, and what what was really interesting about these two proposals were, um, and similar to many of the other proposals that we um, have invested in, are, you know, these are both moving these agencies to cloud-first software and data architecture that will help protect the data that they both store for millions and millions of people. Um, also, they're working to improve their internal tools so that their workforce can deliver better digital experience for their customers. And it also enables the transformational change that these two small agencies, who, as you know, small agencies don't always get the opportunity um, to make this kind of transformational change. And, and the lessons we learn from these small agencies can not only help our larger portfolio of small agencies, um, but also show other people what's possible, even in some of the largest agencies. So that's kind of where I wanted to go next. How does what you've learned broadly across the history of the TMF, what all of you have learned on the board, how does that kind of perpetuate itself? How do you take what you've seen and apply it? Because you still have a lot of the money left that you've been allocated so far. There's still a lot available to address that $2.5 billion in requests. Um, how do you then go back to these agencies that maybe weren't among the 128 or, or that are among the 128 that haven't been awarded yet and say, here's what you need to do in order to make the cut the next time? Yeah, it's a great question. We have limited funding, right? We would have preferred $10 billion in investment, um, right? Because there's that type of demand in the marketplace. There is no question with high value assets and legacy systems that we could spend a significant amount of money helping to modernize these systems. So we, we have limited funding. So we have to invest in agencies that are committed to the framework of us building in an iterative manner um, in showing us that they have the change management capabilities, that they're willing to dig into the business process, that change that is needed, right? You can't just throw technology um, at, at issues and expect that it's going to transform magically. You have to go through the agile acquisition process. You have to work really closely um, with your internal team and with your uh, contracting partners or vendor partners um, to make sure that you are uh, going to be delivering at a high quality. And what we really find, and this has been my experience through my entire career, is by building iteratively, you have the greatest chance of success. Every time I've tried to you know, come up with a grand vision and five-year plan, um, I'm never successful. And I think that we continue to see that across government. So, you know, we're working really hard to assess these projects and make sure that we are using the American Rescue Plan money um, to be the most effective in the shortest amount of time to accelerate 
the transformational change that we're all working towards. I want to talk about money in a moment, Claire, but you use the phrase attacking the business processes. And I wonder if doing that, if modernizing a business process can be as important for an agency making a proposal as the actual technology transformation piece. You hit the nail on the head. Um, You have to rethink modern technology gives you the opportunity to rethink your business process. Full stop. If we're not doing that, we are going to be re-wallpapering the wall, right? Like it doesn't make a lot of sense. So again, kind of the, the, you know, building these minimally viable products or rapid prototyping, it gives you the opportunity to interact um, with your own team, with your customers, most importantly, whether those customers are internal customers to your agency or they're external customers, If you are not building your technology solutions with those customers in mind, um, you are going to not satisfy the end needs of those customers. All right. About money, Claire, I'm doing this from memory. So apologies if I get it wrong, but I think you had about 250 million in the first couple of appropriations somewhere in that neighborhood. And then you got a billion from the American Rescue Plan. And I think you've awarded between 350 and 400 million, somewhere in that neighborhood. So you still have about 600 million. You didn't get anything, unfortunately, in fiscal 22. What does that mean for the way that you might think about awarding the rest of the money? What does it think about, or what does it say about the way you might think about at least the rest of this fiscal year? Any of that? Yeah, we, we are still going full steam ahead on the entire portfolio of projects that came in under the American Rescue Plan. So uh, we are, it takes us about 100 hours to review initial project proposals, moving them into final project proposals. Um, That's a significant amount of time and we take the time on all of the proposals that we have gotten in. So ultimately, based on the FY22 dollars, I think it's really incumbent upon us to show and not tell to show the results to Congress, to show the results um, to our agency community, you know, um, making sure that people understand what the focus is of how are we driving the biggest opportunities to improve the public's experience with government and how also we, we now have the benefit of having reviewed 130 very different proposals in this portfolio. So we've learned a lot through reviewing those proposals. Um, We also recognize that we want to make an impact in a shorter amount of time. It's just, we're we're really trying to think about how we can um, empower the, you know, bring together senior leadership in these agencies to make sure that there's air cover for these projects. Um, focus on that end-to-end customer journey. Um, but again, hitting on those business process improvements that have to happen for you to develop really good um, technology solutions. And then making sure teams are sharing those even within their own agencies so that this work is not siloed, that the agency benefits. We have agencies that put in eight or 10 TMF proposals, one agency, 10 proposals, and none of them connected. 
right? They were all siloed within the agency. And so another thing that we're working on is making sure that we're looking across this entire portfolio and trying to work with agencies um, so that they are uh, providing the greatest impact for the funding that they are receiving. It sounds like there is becoming then a role for the board beyond just evaluating proposals and deciding yes or no, we want to give you the money. It sounds like there is a connective tissue that you're trying to propagate among agencies beyond yes or no, you get the money or you don't get the money. Yeah, I, I, I have to tell you that the TMF board are an exceptional group of committed federal employees that are have many different competencies. You know, we have acquisition expertise, development expertise um, across the portfolio board members. And what we're trying to focus on is um, our TMF board members being champions of these investments, right? And, and that includes, you know, our board members continue to roll up their sleeves and jump into the actual interaction with the agencies. So we're going in and we're speaking to the agencies, we're coaching agency teams, we're connecting teams that are doing similar work across government to make sure that we're learning together. Um, none of us should be starting from a blank piece of paper. And we're also really trying to foster, foster that collaboration so that we can solve some of these shared challenges together. Right. Many of us are dealing with paper based processes, you know, digital processes that hit a paper based process. How are we looking at this together as a community and um, building technology solutions that multiple agencies um, can benefit either from the actual implementation or the contracting um, or the playbooks that we develop afterwards? So what's the playbook? situation though what does that become and what's the resource that that provides because that sounds like the kind of thing that's tangible then that's above and beyond we like this proposal we think it will work or we don't so we'll give the money or we don't yeah the playbooks i think are really going to be some of the catalysts for transformation right we we all are starting on these journeys um i'll take zero trust as an example right zero trust is a great strategy um, but it's actually going to succeed only if we implement it with excellence. Um, and so by getting those early lessons learned, by you know working with agencies to make sure that they have those capabilities in-house, if they don't, how can we foster um, through our community um, the resources that will help them move faster? And, and I think the theme for everything that I am talking about, Francis, is moving faster, right? We have to deliver projects faster and iteratively. We can't continue to do, while projects might take five years, right, to complete, start to finish, we have to attack them incrementally um, to build the momentum for us to solve some of these problems. Um, so on the playbooks, Claire, how will you decide this subject, whatever it may be, is one on which you want to concentrate attention by delivering a playbook. What's the timeline look like for something like that and so on? Yeah, we're actually building them kind of iteratively as we're moving out in the stages of these projects. Also, the CIO Council has been building out playbooks at a pretty consistent basis. So we are going to continue to do that. 
Um, I think that we will wind up seeing through, again, I'll use zero trust as an example. Um, zero trust isn't, you know, a, a something you can just buy off the shelf, right? It's multiple steps across a portfolio that is really going to um, change the security posture of a federal agency. And so we are going, the, the teams that are working on this right now are taking it. We're also kind of eating our own dog food and building these things in iterative chunks, right? If, if we sat back and wrote the TMF execution playbook today, we'd fail miserably because we aren't in every one of those environments assessing what the um, challenges are, the risks are, um, the impediments in the agencies um, and how to solve those. So we're doing that as iteratively as we are with um, the development that we're championing. Claire Martirana, the federal CIO. Stand by a second, Claire, and we'll continue the conversation in just a moment. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, CyberScoop's Zero Trust Summit. will feature public and private sector leaders talking about solutions for federal agencies that are implementing zero trust technology and strategy. The Zero Trust Summit happening April 6th at the Conrad in Washington, D.C. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Claire, thanks for standing by. You talked about digitization a moment ago and, and the importance of thinking about digitization across government. And I want to tie that to the idea that you were talking about earlier about attacking business processes. How are you and your colleagues across the CIO Council thinking about digitization of the government as an enterprise. I, it, there's a lot of activity going on in the individual agencies, but I wonder what that looks like from an enterprise perspective, Claire. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, for this, I'm going to give a nod to, um, you know, Chairman Connolly. Um, it, he, he really, he stated um, in speaking, certainly at Fatara hearings, but also uh, commenting on the last round of TMF investments, we, we need to be driving towards a digital government future, right? The pandemic changed everything in how we worked and what our customers expect, expect from us. So we really need to continue to work with the federal workforce, make sure that we have the right training and opportunities for our in-house federal teams so that they can actually be some of the drivers of this digital government future. We also have to continue to recruit talent into the federal government to make sure that we are bringing in new skills um, so that we can meet this moment. This call is an example of the future that you're up against. You're in the office in EEOB, I presume, yep. and I'm doing this from my uh, home studio today, and uh, FedScoop is back in the office three days a week, working remotely two days a week. That's what the future of the federal government looks like from a workforce perspective, doesn't it, Claire? It sure does. You know, the, the pandemic um, changed everything, but gave us an extraordinary opportunity to evolve. Um, and modern tools and technology are the underlying, the foundation to us being able to evolve. So I, I actually think that, um, you know, the, the re-entry efforts that we're going through at multiple agencies, um, you know, bringing people both back into the office appropriately and, and um, safely, as well as us 
having the technology that allows you to work differently, right? Whether that is, you know, working from home, um, uh, we, we have a high side of government that we have to focus on as well. Um, so there, there's lots of different things going on in these spaces. And I think technology is really the cornerstone of how we are going to continue um, to move forward as a, as a digital federal government. Put, put on your uh, agency CIO hat again, please, for a moment. And I know you don't mean to Bigfoot Guy Cavallo who succeeded you at OPM, but what's the opportunity for a chief information officer to demonstrate, to cement her or his credentials as an important mission delivery partner for the rest of the C-suite in the back-to-office uh, effort? talking about what the underpinnings of a successful back-to-office remote workforce and all of that should be for the deputy secretary, for the CFO, for the acquisition leaders, for uh, the human capital office in an agency, and so on. What strategically would you advise somebody who says, I think I have an opportunity to really demonstrate how we can shine for the rest of the team? Yeah, I'd say, first of all, the CIO has to be in the room full stop, and the senior IT leadership team has to be part of those conversations, right? You, you have to be an engaged business partner as well as a technology partner. So I think that that is kind of the first stop in this. The second is, you know, that the CIO community and, and our IT workforce and our federal workforce in general did a pretty exceptional job during the pandemic of pivoting from one day we're here and the next day we're not here. Um, I think that the, what I am seeing from CIOs across the government um, is they have been leaning in incrementally to supporting the workforce during maximum telework. So coming up with making sure that they, they are secure, but they're able to provide additional um, software, hardware sometimes to uh, support um, folks teleworking. I think um, continuing to work on collaboration tools, right? We are a really different environment and, you know, document collaboration, chat, really basic things that I took for granted, frankly, in the private sector. Um, and I came into government and my main tool was email, um, and that's really hard. Uh, it, it has been a, an extraordinary challenge for me personally to try and do my job via email only as, as the main device. So I think CIOs being in the room, working with their Chicos, working you know, on all of these workforce issues together um, and continuing to innovate. I think there's been an extraordinary amount of innovation um, across uh, different teams um, during the pandemic. I had a really extraordinary experience last week um, with Sean Brune, um, who's the CIO um, over at Social Security. He had brought together over a hundred of their folks on their IT leadership team. And we had a really impactful conversation about both what they were doing, how they've evolved during the pandemic, but also um, how they are keeping the trains running, supporting this workforce re-entry, 
and also delivering on really important, um, they're a high impact service provider. So working collaboratively as an IT leadership team on the uh, customer experience executive order, the cybersecurity executive order. I was so inspired by that team of people and their level of engagement and, and real passion um, not only for the mission, because I have seen that from every federal employee I run into, but um, really for them working differently to empower their agency um, during this reentry. Speaking of teams, your team is evolving too. Uh, Maria wrote, your deputy is retiring, uh, and you've added uh, Drew Micklegard from VA, Eileen Vadreen from the Air Force, experts in their fields. What are you, I'm, I'm thinking about it because it's March Madness time. I'm thinking about you as the coach of this team, Claire, and putting people in positions to get done what you want to get done and also put them in positions uh, to succeed. What's kind of the strategy behind what you're trying to build on the OCIO team? Thank you for that. Um, you know, Maria's uh, retirement as Deputy Federal CIO will leave a really, um, Maria has left such a lasting mark on the federal environment. I've learned an extraordinary amount from Maria having worked with her for this past year. Um, one thing that I have learned is this is a relay race, right? Every one of us is, the baton is passed from one to the other and our high performing teams pass it flawlessly. Um, I want to make sure I am not the person who drops the baton in that in that transition. So I am always the minute I start a job, private sector or in government, I start thinking about succession planning. I start thinking about how do I build the team that is most resilient, that is most capable of meeting the moment. Um, and uh, by bringing in folks like Drew and Eileen, supplementing the team, I was able to do that after having spent some time here, seeing where we were gapped and seeing opportunities that we had to really improve our own internal operations. And I would say that um, one of the things that is has been interesting about the Office of the Federal CIO is I'm used to working side by side with engineers and product managers and UX researchers um, not only to help accomplish the delivery of a project, but to think through how are we designing something? You know, how will this impact our customers? Um, you know, what is the technology solution that we are contemplating, validating, testing, questioning that? And I think that uh, one of the best opportunities that we have here is working with our awesome policy team and the desk officers that we have here in OFCIO by partnering them with technologists that have recently been at agencies doing delivery, doing bureaucracy busting, helping um, an agency team with the change management that is so necessary or the business process improvement that is required for us to deliver great technology. Um, having that uh, those folks as colleagues together, we're going to create better policy because we are thinking through the second and third order consequences of that policy um, and trying to get ahead of it upstream so that we are able um, to really empower agencies rather than burden them with new guidance or guidelines. Um, speaking of your time there, your time there just passed about a year recently. Um, what do you take away from your first year as the federal CIO, Claire? 
I'd say uh, really the the wins. We had a couple really big wins this year, the cybersecurity executive order, the zero trust strategy, the customer experience executive order. We're starting to work on an identity executive order. These are really meaningful policy um, uh, meaningful policy work that is going to have a lasting impact on the federal um, environment. So the collaboration of OMB, I think, has been one of the most inspiring things um, that I have seen. Um, as you know, we have a new confirmed OMB director uh, with Shalonda Young and Jason Miller, my boss, the deputy director for management, they have just been extraordinary in supporting the work that we are doing, getting out this year one set of really critical activities. Um, you know, I think that there's always a need for us to build partnerships um, around, you know, my partnerships start here in OMB is with the regulatory folks, the budget folks, the legal folks, um, all of the component pieces that actually help agency CIO teams in delivering their missions. So in the example I gave you with meeting with um, Sean's team over at Social Security, not only was that um, supported uh, by uh, our desk officer, but we brought an OMB team together to that. So regulatory affairs, our RMO uh, colleagues and partners, um, our legal team, everybody came to listen, right? That's what we have to do first is listen to our customers um, and listen to the team at SSA. Um, and that makes us a better OMB team. And that's really the mandate from Shalanda and Jason um, for us to be, you know, one OMB team helping support the federal enterprise. All right. Quick final thought. Um, if we get together a year from now to talk about your two-year anniversary, which I hope we do, by the way, uh, what would you like the wins to be between now and then? I think uh, evolution in data sharing um, uh, and using data to make informed decisions, having the data visualization capabilities, um, that, that's really important to me and a really big focus of, of um, what I am working on. Implementing zero trust, tactically implementing and doing the policy um, and business process evolution that has to happen for us to be successful at implementing. Claire, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Francis. Great to talk to you. You can read more about the TMF and all the other topics Claire addressed in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new leaders of the president's management agenda will be responsible for execution of the three main pillars of the agenda, and especially for the places they intersect each other. Two of those areas that intersect are customer experience and securing government IT systems. Arlette Hart is master solution architect at Lidos. She's former chief information security officer at the FBI and Lidos sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Arlette, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. It strikes me that the challenge that agencies are up against is the speed at which they're going to be expected to execute both the CX and the security pieces of the president's management agenda. What are organizations that are able to implement things like this at speed able to do to be successful? Welcome. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me today, Francis. Um, I think organizations that are able to do this at speed and with the right level of security 
have an advantage in being able to um, integrate across both the cybersecurity and the operational capabilities so they can tie them consistently together. Lidos has been really working on this over time and focusing on not just delivering speed for operational capabilities, but ensuring that the security components of it are fully integrated consistently. And I know, uh, you know, you go into the um, uh, NIST and 863 and all the, uh, the compliance requirements that go along with it, and really driving ability to reach compliance and operational security in context will make a huge difference. And it'll help ensure that the people who are using the systems really understand the safety and have reassurance that their that their information is secure and that they can use these systems securely and safely. So you just use the term in context. What's the context that one should keep in mind when one's considering architecture, the technology that's necessary for security's sake and all of those kinds of things? Uh, the context really is what is the what's the business function? What's the risk to you and to your organization of using these systems? How is it how is it that you, for your risk appetite, can understand what your exposure is in context? Looking at yourself as a whole person, looking at the people around you as complete persons, not just this is what I do at work, but this is what I do at work, this is what I do at home, this is what I do at church, this is what I do at, you know, whatever other kinds of functions are important to you. You are a composite of those elements together. And your context piece of it needs to hold all of those elements together. So when you reach into any given system, you want to make sure that it respects you as your person in that context. So looking at the government pieces of it, that also is a case where you are in context of that system, whether you are a current employee, a former employee, a future employee, you know, wherever you are in that in that mix, or even you applied to government systems, because still you have pieces of that information that are applicable and that are being held by the government. They need to be trustworthy. And frankly, government is the entity that creates identity. I mean, you know, your social security number, all of these other things, how you are as a person in the United States is a government function. Government needs to take it seriously, and it does. And Lidos is working very hard to make sure that we also help take that position seriously. The key word there, I think, that you used is risk. And I guess the most encouraging thing about all of the the, the kind of the vision that you just laid out is over the last, especially five years, but maybe 10 to 15 years, the government has gotten a lot better from a security perspective about thinking about risk management for itself and for the people that use its systems, both the internal customers and the external customers. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And I think the executive order exemplifies some of the uh, seriousness with, with, with which they take this. And honestly, over the last you know decade, 15 years, it has been increasingly taken seriously, um, retiring legacy systems, moving into a new digital age that has much more security and much more uh, robustness around both the functionality and the security is and um, they've really gotten a long way also in making sure that security uh, supplements instead of gets in the way of the operational capabilities. And we've been driving those those initiatives to make sure you know you have DevSecOps, you tie these pieces together. So you're really working to make sure the functions and the security are a holistic component of all of the systems together. Let's maybe do an inventory of those pieces that you're talking about, because you mentioned DevSecOps. I always think of zero trust. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a million of them. What are the main building blocks? What are the main pieces that somebody in an agency in a security role, high level, needs to be thinking about today? And what should that person maybe also understand about where she'll be 18 months from now or three years from now? Because now's the time to be thinking about that too, right? So the functional requirements, obviously DevSecOps, moving to the cloud. I mean, they're in the executive orders, uh, software bill of materials, secure supply chain. Those are really critical and they're hard problems to solve. And one of the reasons they're hard problems to solve, of course, is because we need people to do the work. And that's one of the bigger challenges too. It's like, how do we really build people who can do these functions and put them in place in context, again, in context, you know, so that we can drive capabilities across the board. Um, But I think uh, the, Obviously, after solar wind, supply chain, after, you know, and then the secure bill of the software bill of material, sorry, so that we have, you know, when you're doing DevSecOps, you're building it on a secure base, which is also a code, uh, code repository. So making sure your code repository, are you doing good software, uh, um, secure software design and development? These pieces are critical because these are elements that are feeding in. And as you have more pieces of it that are not as secure, each little chink in that armor means another vulnerability, another place where people can get in and compromise the data. I mean, we all re- remember, you know, OPM data from a few years ago. It wasn't a malicious thing. It was a an oversight. It was legacy infrastructure. The, um, the investment wasn't there to upgrade the infrastructure any time, and it was just compromised. These things have to be addressed. That's why, you know, the executive order and other things like that are so important. So we can really retire legacy and move to much more modern, secure capabilities. What should organizations in government think about as they're making those transitions and to to try to safeguard themselves from just buying a newer version of the old thing? Right. It's not it's not usually a lift and shift. That's not usually the right answer. Usually you want to make um, explicit decisions to make a change, do it on a risk-based posture. You know, where's your highest risk? What what applications, what capabilities can be transitioned to the new environment? What, um, where are you going to get the most bang for the buck? It has to be a balance. There's, you know, there's the hard, there's the easy, and there's the trivial things that can move. So you want to take some of the hard ones and really do them also, and then move the ones that are easy to move too. But you don't want to leave either the most critical or the least critical for last. You want to balance that transition so that you have an explicit move to getting your entire infrastructure to a more modern infrastructure. We started this conversation uh, talking about speed. And the other thing that I want to talk about before I let you go is scale. Uh, Mm. Obviously, there are some agencies that are smaller and they're able to roll these concepts out and so on. There are some agencies like I referenced the Defense Department a few minutes ago, VA, HHS and others that are just enormous. And and the not just the size, but uh, also the landscape of the the types of environments in which they're trying to provide security is incredible. What's what difference does that make in the way that one formulates a strategy for doing the things that we've talked about in this conversation, Arlette? Yeah, it is completely different how you look at things depending on your scale. If you're in a small agency, finding the um, finding the resources to do the thing can be really challenging. It's it's challenging everywhere, 
but also, you know, just from the, the tooling and the human being sides of it can be a really challenging and retiring your infrastructure in a small organization. I don't think it is fundamentally more different in one sense, but in another sense, it's more visible. So you have the smaller agencies and you can see that where they are in the infrastructure. When you're in a very large organization, it's easier to hide some of your deficiencies. So it's not necessarily true that the larger ones are more modern, but they have segments that are more modern. So I think the, the challenges are common across all of the organizations, and we really do need to look at it that way instead of saying, oh, well, every, this one's great and this one's terrible, because it's not true. Everybody has room to grow and room to improve. We need to look across the organizations and do and raise all the boats, not just the ones that are the, um, the biggest and highest speed. And I think the piece that's also true with scale is that it's harder to find the small things when you're in a very large scale. So you've got to figure out how to do that in different ways. It's easier for people to find people problems than machines to find machine problems or machines to find people problems. So looking at that at the large scale gets to be a different kind of problem. We've been uh, focusing a lot of AI kinds of fo- uh, functions on that, of course. And um, it's making a lot of progress on it, but it's still a really hard challenge. But that's where you get the the scale questions in. Is that automation possibility, that automation potential, maybe the biggest difference maker in the coming 18 months to three years? AI in particular should be, I believe. Um, I think there's the, the challenge is going to be still the move to the cloud. And I think that is going to be the biggest difference maker in the next 18 months. And then um, moving to a zero trust framework so that you really understand who's doing what in context. Are they allowed to do it? And making sure that that is done uh, without friction. Those are the those are the elements. And then adding AI to that so that you really understand what the zero trust framework is doing in context. That's going to be a huge make, uh, decision maker and a huge benefit to um, not just government, but I think, you know, eventually the private sector and all the people who are supporting government in context too. So I think those three pieces of it are going to be huge. Arlette Hart of Lidos, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. You can read more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. Now, if you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Back again tomorrow for Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.